This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I'm particularly delighted to introduce our afternoon keynote uh, presenter uh, for a variety of reasons. But one reason is that Dr. Cecilia Conrad uh, inaugurated our Institutional Transformation Seminar here in the fall of 2009. Cecilia, as you know from the bio that's in your uh, folder, is a professor of economics and holds a name chair. And in addition, she is the vice president and dean of Pomona College. And it's also noteworthy that in January she'll be leaving um, uh, Pomona to become the director of the MacArthur Fellows Program, and I think that deserves a hand. Um, one reason why I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Conrad uh, is because of her work as an economist that looks at the intersection of race, class, and gender in markets, in labor markets, uh, and in behavior. And I think this perspective is particularly valuable as we continue and augment our efforts to understand ourselves as a university. UC and UCI uh, generates a tremendous amount of research that goes out into the world and shapes the future, but it's only recently that we've begun the task of becoming a learning organization. And for that reason, it's particularly valuable to draw on different experts who can help us understand what we've done and what we can do to improve. And so, I'm delighted to bring to the stage Dr. Conrad, who'll discuss what does science tell us about broadening the participation of women of color in STEM and SBS fields. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you. What Doug didn't tell you is he's also an alum of Pomona, so we have another uh, connection there. One of the great things about uh, the opportunity you've given me to join you today was being able to sit in on some of the morning, on the morning sessions and to hear some of the comments and things that came up, and then to pick up on some tropes of this conference, one of which is that you have to tell a personal story. <laughs> now, I had already planned to tell personal stories, because that's typically um, how I begin a talk. Um, and the story I want to tell is to go back into the early days of my career, 
when I was a young assistant professor at Barnard College uh, in New York City. And I was supposed to be on a sabbatical that was typical for assistant professors to get a year to try and get their research ready for the tenure review, the upcoming tenure review. So I was on sabbatical. Uh, but while on my sabbatical for that year, I had been appointed to our college's reaccreditation committee. And um, at the reaccreditation committee, one of the themes of, of the review had to do with diversity and faculty diversity. And so we had a session where our dean uh, went and gave a little prepared speech. And the topic of the prepared speech was why we shouldn't try and recruit diverse faculty. And the, he made some points. And he meant it mainly to be provocative. Uh, but he started out with, well, first of all, the main reason that we hear for, uh, one of the main reasons we hear for hiring and recruiting minority faculty is because they will diversify the curriculum and the bring kind of research about what's happening in minority communities. But it turns out that if you look at most of the research that's being produced on minority communities, it's not being produced by minority faculty. So he questioned whether we needed minority faculty to diversify the curriculum. His second was that, well, the other argument is that you need faculty of color to serve as role models for students of color. And he questioned whether that was really necessary as well. And he said, well, how far do you take this? Do you have to have a Korean-American faculty member to be a mentor for a Korean-American student? And, and he went into a long list of, of various examples like that. And then he said his third point was that minority faculty were really expensive. That they were being you know, competed for by all of the, a very small set of people were being competed for by a lot of institutions, and they were getting paid outrageous salaries. So he finished his speech, uh, and the group sitting around the table, of course, all turned to look at me. Because at the time, I was the only faculty of color on the faculty at Barnard College. And uh, I paused, took a breath, because this was my dean, and I did not have tenure. <laughs> and in what I, I think about using writer Jill Nelson has a phrase, the thin line between Mau Mauing and Tomming. I looked at him and I said, I have one question for you. And he said, yes, what is that? I said, who's paying all the money and where do I sign up? <laughs> now, that question that he posed, though, for, oh, it actually kind of was provocative for me and started me in, in thinking a bit about the set of issues, about why it is that we want to broaden participation, and then how it is that we can broaden participation. And that interest in this set of issues has led me to where I am now. And, and currently, I am the chair of the Committee on Equal Opportunity in Sciences and Engineering at the National Science Foundation. And the topic for my talk today partly comes from conversations that we have been having at CIOS, that committee. And those conversations, I would put under the broad heading as being very interested in moving beyond intuition and guesses to a true understanding of best practices, what works, what doesn't, and why. How does it work? 
And it's that definition of the science of broadening participation, and I'm borrowing here from the National Science Foundation's website, there was recently a Dear Colleague letter on the science of broadening participation. And to summarize, it's research that utilizes the theories, methods, and analytical techniques of social, behavioral, and economic sciences to better understand the barriers as well as factors that enhance our ability to broaden participation in STEM. One side note here, in one of the morning sessions, the session on the social and behavioral sciences, which was across the hall, we got into a little bit of conversation about how to make sure that SBS stays in the conversation when we talk about broadening participation in STEM and how to make that linkage. And there were several arguments offered there, but I would make an additional one here. And that is that increasingly grant funders, funding agencies, college administrators, the public at large, want to have a sense that what you're doing actually has an impact and works. They want to think about how you look at these programs, where did the programs emerge from, and that for people in traditional STEM fields, it's really imperative that you have a conversation with the people in SBS because this, as you'll see, is one of the areas where there is some expertise. So why do we need a science of broadening participation? And I asked this question, and I'll tell you, I added this slide very recently to the presentation because I was talking with a colleague of mine about the work I was going to, the body of research I was going to talk a little bit about here, and I described to her some of the findings that are out there, and she said, well, I knew that already. And there is a way in which we have intuitive knowledge of some of these things, but in order to be persuasive, in order to, to make the case and to be able to replicate some of this, we need to go beyond that intuitive knowledge to actually building a body of evidence. And so why do we need it? We want to build a body of evidence on what really happens to affect participation and STEM and SBS. And I will cite as an example, Linda Sachs talked about some of her work where she's looking at sort of longitudinally what explains why people come into these kinds of fields. We want to be able to have this understanding in order to develop effective strategies for intervention. We want to be able to evaluate the outcomes of those interventions to know what we see as success is really success and not serendipity. And we want to understand what makes successful strategies successful. One of the ways in which I first kind of got involved in this issue of trying to broaden participation in economics, my field, um, was that I became, I, I was part of the inaugural leader of something called the Pipeline Project. And it was an effort to recruit more blacks and Latinos into PhD programs in economics. And we had a pilot project, actually, that was at UC Riverside in the economics department there that involved some summer research opportunities. We brought in some guest speakers. We had a really kind of exciting year or so. And, and we felt like we were making, we thought we had success. We could point to some examples of success. But then the faculty member who was there, um, who had lots of energy and so forth, left, I think to go to the, off the UCOP office. He left, he set up successors, but the whole program kind of fizzled. And what was the piece that I started to begin to appreciate was the role of the personality in driving the success of the program. 
And so it's important when we particularly want to expand and broaden, as the advanced program kind of imagines that we're going to do with paid grants, to understand whether or not what was successful here will be successful someplace else. So those are the kinds of questions that a science of broadening participation would answer. There are pieces of the science of broadening participation already in place across multiple disciplines. However, we have rarely come together to talk about it. And I want to outline some of those pieces today. And then one of the pitches that I hope uh, will come away is that it's important for sciences, the different social sciences even, and the sciences and the social sciences to talk to each other. So the first kind of branch of the science of broadening participation is a growing body of research on the processes that affect performance, academic performance. Many of you will be familiar with the stereotype threat idea, but there's actually an expanded body of research in both cognitive psychology and in social psychology about the various ways that um, being part of a solo group, solo status, may affect not only how you perceive culture, but in some of the neuroscience work, actually influences executive function and shows up in a particular part of the brain. We have longitudinal studies of academic choices, some of which that have been going on for a very long time in, in different areas. There's a group of faculty at liberal arts colleges on the East Coast who've had a longitudinal study of, of academic engagement where they've interviewed people year after year and kind of tracked them to understand the pathways. And I already referenced the work by Linda Sachs that we talked about earlier. There is work out there not specifically targeting the issue of STEM or SBSS or even targeting academic institutions, but primarily on the business side, analyses of how organizations change and what kinds of strategies work to affect, to actually have an impact on the diversity of the organization. Uh, there's work by Frank Dobbins and Alexandra Califf, if you're not familiar with it, I suggest you look at it, that is primarily focused on corporations. And one of the things that they find is that appointing a diversity officer does not help. As I said, there are some things that you kind of knew, but having somebody actually document it, that, in fact, diversity training, as currently conceived, doesn't really have an impact. That the only thing that really has an impact is to build responsibility for diversity into the ways in which managers are reviewed and compensated. And that's particularly relevant in the conversation that we happened earlier about thinking about, you call it the APM, is that the... Thinking about the APM and what that says to people about the criteria under which you're going to be evaluated. But there is research uh, from in the sociology that helps to document about why you need that. Another category are generally conversations about evaluation of metrics of success. How do you go about measuring things? One of the, I was very, I'm just always overwhelmed at how much data the University of California system has. So it's a great place to do stuff like this because you have so much data. There's a chart uh, that Yolanda Moses put up that you had tracked every applicant. And I would just love to have that data. So the, um, but, but also part of the evaluation issue, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this, is that in 
in one of the challenges for science of broadening participation, particularly if we're looking at women of color, is that many of the accepted methods of doing program evaluation require large numbers or require randomized assignment. And it's a challenge if you're talking about five people to do that. Uh, in the program that I ran for the American Economic Association, simultaneously as this program was being developed to, re to recruit minority students, there was a program, and I'm going to cite some of their findings a little bit later, run by the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession that was a mentoring program that they developed. And one of the really exciting things for the Economic Association was that CSWEP, the women's group, planned on randomly assigning people to either get mentored or not mentored. And that this way they would be able to, at the end of the process, do a real evaluation of what the impact of mentoring had been. Recognizing that there's going to be some slippage because, you know, you, they were trying very hard to make sure that people who weren't going to be mentored were outside of the system. I was asked to do the same thing for my project. But if I looked out there at my project and tried to create a kind of group of people, first of all, I tried to randomly assign the people who were assigned to my program and not, then if I had 10 applications, I was going to have five in and five out, that wouldn't tell me much. If I wanted to find a control group, and I, I actually asked the individuals who applied in our initial round, who were graduate students, to be part of the mentor program, I said, identify someone else in your graduate program who's most like you. They don't have to be the member of the same racial, ethnic group, or even gender group, but somebody who's had a background similar to yours in terms of types of undergraduate institution. And what I found in many cases is that not only were the students of color the only student of color in their graduate program, they were many times the only US trained person in their graduate program. So even that made this kind of you know, experiment, uh, experimental modeling impossible. So one of the challenges will be thinking about how do you deal with small numbers. And then the other category that I will note is the area of research which is slow, but we heard a reference to it earlier in SBS under the area of, under the topic of white privilege. And that is understanding the ways in which identity gets developed, the ways in which bias plays a role, not only from the perspective of the person who may be the recipient of bias, and I'll just admit for a second, I should say, before I say this, I'm not a, neuro, I don't, not a neuroscientist, never taken a course, but when I read some of this research about what part of the brain gets affected when you experience racial bias, I started imagining that they were going to come up with a pill <laughs> that I could take that would make me immune to discrimination. <laughs> Just wouldn't notice it. <laughs> I actually kind of have that pill already. It's called arrogance, but... Uh, <laughs> But, but what we, could, we could flip that around and think about if they could, in fact, identify the part of the brain that's get activated when you are engaged in bias towards somebody that they could take and they could stop being biased. <laughs> so as we think about this, and we've heard it, we've seen a bit about the data here, so I'm actually going to shorten this part of my presentation a bit because I think we've talked a lot about the data. We can think about critical transitions. And what I'm going to do is organize some of the summaries of things that people know that matter under these critical transition headings. I, I have skipped K through 12. And I have only skipped it not because it's not important, but because of the audience here. 
and the fact that I think it's sometimes much too easy for us in higher ed to say the problem is K through 12 and not then use that as an excuse for non-action. So I've started with the college major, then to graduate degrees, and then to a faculty position. And so I am indicating a certain particular focus on what makes people show up at places like ours. So what I've done is put together a series of some charts using the UC data. And as I said, we've already seen this data. One of the things I found entertaining were the multiple ways we all thought about charting this. Because I think we said we had a column chart, we had a pie chart, and now you have a bar. Uh, what I've tried to do is to take a look at different stages at the UCs. And I started with American Indian women, but if you can't see those percentages, the highest percentage there is less than 1.3%. So I'm just going to note that I, I've looked at this, but their numbers are really much too small to talk a lot about. But I want to point to African-American and Latino women and to point to something that seems to be reflected in the UC data that's also reflected in national studies. And that is that there are two kinds of places where we lose people. The blue bar here, that is intent to major. So this is data that I actually pulled from um, the University of California Office of the President's site. I believe I got it from there. Uh, that wasn't in our folder. And it shows you that we have you know, intent to measure for African-American women. Social science and psychology is one of the highest groups. But there's significant interest in life sciences and even in computer science, engineering, math, and physics, and so forth. But that the red bar, which is here, are the actual majors. So one of the points of dropping off is that you get freshmen in who are really interested, and then they drop off. The other thing I've done here is to separate out a bit the fields. Uh, instead of just thinking about the sciences and then the social and behavioral sciences, I think it's also important and to make a distinction among the sciences. And I'll note as an aside that even in the social and behavioral sciences, one of the things we heard a bit about this morning was the variation across disciplines within that. I heard over and over again that economics was, in fact, usually the biggest problem. And that's still true. Uh, this is Chicana and Latinas. You'll notice the same kind of pattern, the drop-off between intent to major and major. And then there is a slightly smaller drop-off from graduate school, this is the doctorate, this is a faculty appointment, and this is tenure. I should go back and show that for the African-American women, too. You'll see in some areas, in fact, the faculty appointment actually does a little better, which I, I suspect implies we're importing people from other states, and the drop-off. For Asian-American women and for white women, but particularly for Asian-American women, we'll notice a different point at which we lose people. And that point is after the undergraduate degree to the next stages in the pipeline, to the doctorate and to the PhD kind of program. Now, recognizing these are not the same people that we're comparing. I'm using the UCOP data to just kind of give you a sense of this. But if you recall from reading the Ong article that was in your reading and other places, this is a pattern that is a national pattern in terms of where we lose people. So when we talk about those transitions, the, what makes people leave from intent to major to graduate, and then what makes women not persist into a career 
that is a graduate study and then academic, academic path career. So that's the graph for white and other women. The um, life science giant spike there, I haven't quite figured out yet um, as looking at it. But as I said, we're not comparing the same people, so you should really just compare one bar to the next. So I said that I'm an economist. And as I began to talk about this growing area of the science of broadening participation, this development of this field, I'm coming at it with a particular disciplinary lens. And I am not using that lens in a way that suggests, as economists sometimes do, that we're the best, even if we are. But instead, I want to use it so you can understand my thinking and how I am processing what I'm learning from reading in other disciplines, how I'm trying to frame that in a particular model as I talk through these things. So for an economist, we have a model. We have analyses of how people make choices about occupations. And it's an analysis that's framed in a tradition of individual agents making decisions. They view, you know, if any of you, how many of you have ever taken an economics course? Okay, so most of you have seen this whole model where we maximize utility or happiness subject to some kind of budget constraint and everybody has lots of full information and they're well, really are well aware of what, what makes them happy and so their decisions are the best decisions that can be. I mean, that's kind of the nutshell of, of the way we think about the world or some of us think about the world. So we have individual agents who are making these decisions and they face constraints and they face cost and one of the things that I'll note is that economists tend to focus on the financial costs, but it's certainly ca capable of incorporating psychic costs. And we make assessments about how different choices are going to pay off in terms of lifetime happiness. And that lifetime happiness is assumed to depend on things like the kind of your social identity, but it can also depend on how much goods you can buy with the money that you earn and so on, all of that. Another key aspect of the economist model is that the market, the market here being that kind of intangible space that isn't a physical space necessarily, but the place where transactions happen, where buyer and sellers meet, that that market tends to be colorblind. There is a classic uh, theory in economics that in a free competitive market, Individuals might be racist, but the market isn't. Now, there is a recognition that consumers can have attitudes and that consumers' attitudes can actually lead to, to impacts on market outcomes. So if you have a consumer who only wants to buy, um, um, well, I'll give an example. I was in a doctor's office recently, a dentist's office, and the individual came in met the dentist, this was their first visit, found out that the dentist was a white male and not an Asian male and said he would only have his dentistry done by Asian males and left. This was a white male who said that, by the way. <laughs> but that kind of consumer discrimination can play itself out, and that's going to be important as we think through a little bit about what a university kind of model looks like. So what the economist model says is that we should be able to explain low participation in STEM by women, by women of color in particular, either because they assess different utilities to being in the STEM and SBS occupations, different happiness assessments, or because they face different costs, or because there are differences in financial resources that allow you to do, make different kinds of decisions. 
So the economist model is, is somewhat of a narrow model and a frustrating one for many who are thinking beyond that. What we add from what I add or what I add in my thinking about it from other disciplines um, are some pieces of information from other social sciences about what's going on in this process of choosing a career. And that is, first of all, that the assessment of what kind of happiness you're going to get from a particular career path is going to be affected both directly and indirectly by context and cues. So context in the sense that I might love hammering nails at a construction site. And if the world were a world where there were no prejudices or things like that, then my career path that would make me the most happy would be to hammer nails at a construction site. But the fact that the other workers at the construction site may whistle or engage in other forms of harassment activities will reduce the happiness that I get from that. And that's an insight that's brought in for me as an economist, because economists, there's no interpersonal interaction in that model. It's me making a decision given the market. But what we bring in, what I can bring in from thinking about these other disciplines is the ways in which context and interactions affect this. The other is the importance of psychic costs. Issues of social identity, climate, self-efficacy, and biases which not only directly impact performance, but may also indirectly impact performance by affecting how I'm able to function when I'm, when I'm in the middle of dealing with the stress of that bias and in interaction. Just one other little piece on here that is uh, a finding that's coming out of some of this research, and that is it, it's important to, to recognize that there can be a big separation between performance the ways economists think about it, your productivity, and your notions of self-efficacy. So even with identical performance, even with you performing just as equally on all of the kind of formalized metrics we may have, an individual may still perceive themselves as not belonging, not fitting, and that that then will influence their decision making, even if on paper they look identical. So, I want to go through some of the things that this literature has taught us. And as I go through it, I'm going to try and point to the fact, though, that the literature tends to either be about women or, and it's a much smaller or, about race. And that we have a very limited body of research that actually deals with the intersections of those two. So, you know, when we look at the factors that influence intent to major, there's the interest in science issue. One of the things that the Ong article points out and is also true in some other research that's come out is that the interest in science is there. We have to, we have to make use of it. High school preparation, we know that this influences your performance in your courses and that your performance impacts your outcome. Perceptions of self-efficacy, as I just pointed out, not necessarily the same as your preparation and your ability to perform. The peer network that you have, uh, we've got a number of examples of studies that show that having a group of peers who can perform, who can offer you social support and help construct for you an identity that includes performing well in your science course can help individuals succeed. Largely, that's based on studies of minority populations and first-generation students. Faculty relationships can be both good and bad. 
in terms of their impact on students' persistence, and there are studies that show both. The form of teaching that takes place, uh, there's an extensive research body on the um, issues of large lectures being intimidating environments for women, on issues of getting hands-on experience in research, active learning as a form of inclusive pedagogy. Talked a bit about social identity as well. All of this can fall under the category of climate, issues of social support, and then finally, gender bias. And I will refer for a moment as one example of a kind of research that would fit under this broad category of the science of broadening participation is the recent study that I'm sure many of you have seen about bias in um, hiring a research assistant, a lab manager, where the study found that women scientists had the same kind of biases as men in terms of preferring the male candidate, other things being equal. That particular example is a good example of transfer of methodology to ask these kinds of questions about the science of broadening participation because the methodology there was something developed in economics to study employment discrimination in a broad way. It's the idea of creating a body of, of sort of CVs or resumes that look identical but have subtle cues about race. Some of you have probably heard of the study about the African-sounding names and sending that out and seeing how people respond to them as a way of doing actually experiments to test for the existence of bias. Moving between the bachelor's and the doctorate degree, and it's important to note that all of this, of course, is compounding. So nothing I've had on the earlier list disappears. It continues as being important as we move forward. Uh, the college GPA, early on, there was research particularly focused on selective colleges and universities and the fact that they have not, were not sending minority students onto PhD programs and linking that to a GPA gap in those institutions. The undergraduate research experience, solo status, very growing body of research that looks at how being the only one affects your performance, how it affects your interactions with others, and how it affects your decision to persist. One of those examples of something that it's not surprising, but to have it actually documented makes it a, a stronger argument for critical mass. Funding issues, um, and I'm going to talk particularly about funding issues as we move on, but there are issues here in terms of access to the kinds of scholarship information that you need to know that a PhD program is, is possible. We have research on mentorship and role models, not a, very, not a strong enough body and very little focus, particularly on women of color. And then there are the biases in how performance is assessed. Limited body of research, but here's an area where both the SBE and the sciences could benefit from talking to individuals who are in the humanities or in linguistics in studying how reference letters are written how recommendation letters may include in them implicit bias in the language and the type of language that's used. There are few studies, I think really two good ones, that try to look at that kind of issue. In terms of doctorate degree to faculty position, uh, the issue of family responsibilities. This came up in one of the earlier presentations. Uh, there have been a number of studies that have tried to point to the constraints of childbearing in making the decision not to pursue a PhD or not to pursue uh, an academic career, particularly for white women. There have been 
No studies of women of color with respect to this issue. And I think it's a particularly interesting one to ask in the context of women of color for two reasons. One is that if you look at women of color in academia across the board, and I haven't broken this out just for engineering and, um, and for the science and technology fields, but if you look at across the board, they're much more likely to be single parents than white women. So it's a particularly interesting group to study from that regard. The flip side, the other side that I think makes, makes, it, makes us want to question whether we would get the same kind of results, is that the women of color historically, particularly African-American women, have seen less, the family status has been less a barrier to workforce participation and types of jobs historically in the US. So for example, we talk about the very high growth rate of women's labor force participation rate in the US from the 60s and 70s up to the present. But that high growth in labor force participation rate of married women and of mothers was really an experience for white women Black women's labor force participation rates of married black women with children was already extremely high as early as the 1960s when we first got that data. So it's a question as to whether what we think about in terms of how family responsibilities affect decision making are the, would be the same for white women and women of color, a case where an intersexual analysis would be critical. Faculty relationships appear again in terms of the mentoring. Um, in this case, the climate and then the biases in the hiring process. One of the, uh, one of the sort of interesting areas, again, that we can draw from the private sector are studies about what influences how a hiring, what a hiring committee thinks about when they see candidates. And so there's a series of experiments in which hiring committees have been given kind of, of pep talks ahead of time about how important diversity is to the organization and how important it is to think about the fact that there's uh, gendered segregation in occupations. And the outcomes have been that the hiring committee is no more likely to hire a woman into a non-traditional job than they were before the pep talk, but they're far more likely to hire a man into a non-traditional job. Interesting, right? <laughs> What these hiring process studies have shown is that the kind of priming you need to do before you begin the hiring process is to focus their attention on what they all agree are the job relevant competencies and metrics that they want to use to assess those. That by a focusing attention on the job relevant, it tends to divert them from the other ways in which they may have implicit bias as they look at applications and processes. Again, these are mainly studies that were done in the private sector, but they have implications in the academic sector as well. And then there's the faculty position to tenure. And I want to spend a little bit of time here talking about particularly some areas where there hasn't been a lot of research, where there needs to be more research done. When we think about the faculty move from getting an appointment to getting a tenured appointment or moving up the ranks, uh, we recall back on the notion of, the th of academic life as being a three-legged stool. There's teaching, there's research, there's service. The weight that's placed on those varies across institutions, and I guess, I'm guessing varies within the UC across institutions in terms of the weight placed, relative pl weight placed on those three. But if we think about those three things, we could ask systematically the questions about how do each of those metrics vary? 
and, and then do what an economist would normally do, is look at those metrics, plug them into an econometric or statistical model, and conclude, as many recent studies have of women, that there isn't any evidence that given the same measured outcomes in teaching, given the same number of research publications and grants, and given the same service, which is not weighted that heavily in the process, that the prom probability of promotion is the same for women and men. And there's recent studies by Donna Genther and Shulamit Khan that kind of come to that conclusion. That, and for an economist, that means there's no evidence of bias in the promotion process. But what that misses is the potential for bias in those individual inputs, bias in those pieces that go into the promotion puzzle. Just as an aside, Ginther and Kahn have also looked at the promotion process in the field of economics. And while they found no evidence of bias in STEM fields, they found that there was evidence of bias in the economics profession, which is even though we believe these models more than anybody. <laughs> so it's important to think about each one of these pieces, the ways in which there may be gender and racial bias in how teaching gets evaluated, particularly to the extent that you're relying on student evaluations the role that there may be biases in the grant-making process, calling your attention to the recent study of NIH grants and differences between blacks and whites and the probability of receiving those grants. I've cited the fact that there is evidence of gender bias in some fields but not in others. Specifically focusing for just a moment on two issues in this area. The first having to do with the issue of the classroom. Most of the analysis about the impacts on self-efficacy, on functioning of being in an environment of where there are stereotypes and bias are studies that focus on a student in a classroom where the student is being tested by some person of authority over the student. So this, this research body that has developed, and it's a very exciting area of research, has largely focused on the individual who's being tested as having a lower status than the person doing the testing. What hasn't been part of the research and is an area that I think is important in this context is what if you're the person who at least explicitly has the status, you are the professor, but you are on a regular basis in a classroom where the students are questioning your authority or your status or your knowledge of the, of the place. How does that affect your ability to engage in the other forms of activity that are essential to promotion, such as publishing and, and doing those other sorts of things? Just to give you a sense of this, this is a, a study, and I actually cut off the, the um, citation here, but this is a study from 2005 that did a survey of people and asked these professors about their classroom experience. And what this reports is three categories, whether students question your authority, whether you feel you have to prove competence in the classroom, and whether students inappropriately challenge your authority. And what stands out here in a very striking way is the fact that women face more challenges than white men. Black men actually face more challenges than either black women or white women in the classroom environment. So this kind of classroom environment 
the connection between it and your ability to do other kinds of faculty activities is an area that has not been studied in any depth. What has been studied are, is in the area of qualitative research, and so just to illustrate that, I wanted to include this one quote from a qualitative study of women of color by Caroline Turner. Um, on my first day of teaching, I walked into the large auditorium-style classroom and sensed the surprise of the students in seeing that I was a black female. The male students sometimes would try to show that I did not know my material. For example, after I had explained a point in class, a male student would attempt to explain the point again in a, in a manner that suggested my explanation was incorrect. This is just one sample of, if you read through some of the qualitative studies of the experiences of women of color in the classroom that reappear over and over again and that are most likely to appear in classrooms where there's the least expectation of seeing a black woman or a woman of color, Latina, as your professor. When you are one of three or four Latinas and being a woman, almost every committee wants you to be on it. It gives you opportunities. At the same time, I think you are expected to do a lot of things not expected of other faculty, like spend your sabbatical on an accreditation committee. <laughs> so what are some takeaways from what we know right now about the science of broadening participation in this body of research? And what are some of the things that I believe we need to do some more work on? The first is that black and Latino women exit between first year and graduation in fairly high numbers. Asian American women exit at promotion to tenure and also between the graduate program and, I mean, between, well, between the doctorate and a first faculty appointment. We find that solo status matters, especially for women of color. And even though this may not be something that it's a surprise for us, it's intuitive, we have increased our understanding of the mechanisms through which being the only one affects performance, self-efficacy, and persistence in this literature. Interventions that reduce self-doubt and increase a sense of belonging show promise in the experiments where those have been tried. In the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Professions, randomized experiment with mentoring programs, these programs were shown to be effective for women. Their study notably doesn't talk about women of color at all. Establishing responsibility for organizational diversity has an impact. Diversity training does not. There is evidence that family responsibilities have an impact on women but there's no specific work really on women of color. There's been relatively little work exploring differences in promotion rates for women of color. And in particular, can you manipulate the experience in the classroom, and I would add to that in the department, from the others there in order to change that kind of environment? And then, how there are very few studies of how time gets allocated by individuals. How do you make the decision about how much time you're going to spend mentoring students, how much time you're going to spend on research, how does that time get allocated, and why? I want to pick up on that last issue for just a moment uh, to tell another kind of, of story. 
about the time allocation. And actually, before I tell the story about the time allocation, I wanted to particularly make a point that this notion of the burden, the service burden, kind of embedded in the double buying notion for women of color is one that in qualitative studies has a lot of legs. But I have found increasingly as I have talked to individuals across campuses that there is skepticism about whether or not there really is a difference in the burden of service, in the difference of time that people take. So one of the areas that there is a need is to document um, how this burden, the unhidden work, gets played out and distributed across different population groups. In one analysis I did using the National Survey of Post-Secondary Faculty, uh, I found that there was an average for the black women who were tenure-track, who actually did service, who participated on committees, that they were spending an average of eight hours a week, which if you think about it, that's a day out of their schedule in committee service. It's not clear to me yet how much of that is connected to the disciplinary distribution of women and how much of that would be specific to the science and engineering fields. So what I wanted to finish on, though, in thinking about all of this, is to remind us a bit about the question that the dean posed to me. And that is to think about why it is that we're interested in diversity. And as we begin to think about the assessment of our efforts, focusing on the why as much as on the numbers themselves. The pipeline project that I was deeply involved in, I could point to successes in terms of economists who came into the program, who we were able to mentor, who finished their PhDs, and who've gone on in some cases to fame and maybe fortune. One of them is an economist at Harvard who's been featured in lots of newspapers and last year won one of those MacArthur Genius Grants. Came through our program, came from a second tier state university campus and was able to make a real name in economics. So I can point to successes in terms of identifying individuals and people. But what worried me as I over, if I looked at the people who came through the program, the people who dropped out along the way, so I looked at who stayed, who persisted, and who dropped out, I became more and more concerned about the following, and that is that the argument for wanting diversity in the economics profession is an argument that is not only the list that my dean made, that we want role models, that we want the curriculum somehow to look a little different, uh, it's not only an argument about social justice, but there's an, also an argument that says that I firmly believe, and I think many of us do, that the science of economics would be improved by having a more diverse set of participants in it. And what that means is that I wanted to send people into graduate programs and through the PhD programs and into the professorate because I was hoping that they would start to ask new and different questions. That they might question some of the paradigm of the field and lead us into ways to be able to understand and offer better explanations for why the e economic status exists as it is, for why resources get distributed that way, and so on. But what I found in the program is that the people who had a different way of looking at the world could not get through the PhD program. 
that the people who got through the PhD program came out on the other end no different from anyone else. That they came out on the other end essentially without a different perspective or not willing to ask hard questions or to challenge the way the field is practiced. So one of the kind of frontiers for thinking about a science of broadening participation is to really begin to try to think about how to document why diversity leads to better science. And that is the kind of impetus that we've been talking about on the committee at NSF. I will say the committee has been talking about it. NSF has been talking about it, but probably the committee's been talking about it more. I think there is a kind of momentum going on right now to actually develop some funding streams to support this kind of research on the science of broadening participation. So I urge you to stay and pay close attention to that on the NSF's website as we go forward. Thank you. Questions, yeah. Questions? The uh, mics are on either side. Please come forward. Hello, Elizabeth Ozer from the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for that nice overview. Um, I had a sort of a broader question when you talk about um, the science, is there a specific area you went over from undergraduates to majors, from doctoral, um, where you really see the science lacking? And I, one reason I ask about that is when you had your various overviews and lists, there were areas, for example, that you list um, intent to major for undergrad. You brought a lot up about self-efficacy and competence. Um, I noticed that's not, wasn't one of your areas that was listed in doctoral degree to faculty position, and you would certainly think that competence to be able to engage in scientific research, academics, I mean, you could see where a lot of those things would certainly make sense. Um, so just if you could comment, are, are we really missing a lot of data in some of these particular transition areas? Thank you. Yes, um, I would say that the, that the body on the undergraduate experience, the body of research uh, is substantial. I, substantial, I don't want to use that word to suggest there's nothing to do, there's lots to do. But that there is a body there. The analysis of the graduate school experience uh, seems very thin at this point. There is some analysis of the choice of career given that you finished the doctorate. Uh, that has mainly, as I mentioned, focused on the family issues and how that influences whether you choose an academic or non-academic career. But from when you start the graduate program until when you finish, there is a, not a very strong body there. There are some the programs that are in place that potentially could yield data down the road that we could analyze, but, the, but that's a thin area. I'd say that the other thin areas... Um, I've, I talked a bit about the experience of moving from a new faculty appointment and persisting to becoming a tenured professor or becoming a full professor. And the, there is there's analysis for women about um, comparing, looking at research productivity, looking at the effect of motherhood on research productivity. There is analysis of the potential for um, racial bias in the outcomes of the promotion process. But there isn't much research of the kind of, of what I would call the inputs into those processes as to how those play out. There's work on, on women's uh, 
on whether or not there's any bias in the publication process and work on citations, but not much in terms of the other demands on time, and not very kind of microanalysis of, of how it is that a, a person um, how it is that a person navigates through those, those competing ways, those competing priorities. One of the things that comes out in some of the research on service is that if you talk to a woman of color about why they say yes, because that to me is a fascinating issue, like why did I say yes to being on that committee? Saying yes was directly connected to the solo status. That saying yes was a way of being part of the institution. So that, you know, understanding there's a whole realm of work that's needed to be done there. And then, as I mentioned, there is relatively not enough work being done on um, how you can effectively change the behavior of the others in the department, the other graduate students, the students in the classroom, or the other colleagues. Hi. Thank you very much for your, for your talk. Very informative. There's so many things you went over, actually. It's quite amazing. I, um, a couple of things that I just wanted to mention in terms of comments. Uh, when you mentioned this, having the self-doubt, Ricardo Aquino, by the way, from Santa Barbara, having that, that self-doubt, uh, actually, uh, Professor Claude Steele at Stanford has done a yes. pretty good work on that, mm -hmm. uh, showing some, uh, doing some analysis and evidence work on where individuals, these are mostly students, I believe, that they actually tend to undermine themselves, and our students will be no different, I would think. And some of our candidates for our, uh, our professorships, same thing. Uh, and most of that work is on undergraduates, but that is an area where I'd love to see the same experiments replicated. Which I, I would think it would carry, it carry uh -huh. just like you were talking about, things compound so uh -huh. that it would carry through. Uh, so they're more likely to uh, deficiencies or concerns, uh, constructive criticisms are tended to think, oh, it's me as opposed to other folks, usually dominant um, culturally individuals, that say it's their problem. Uh, issues that I had with that department, it's the department's problem, not mm -hmm. my problem. So. But so Claude Steele, I also want to mention Scott Page, uh, where you mentioned also about uh, doing some analysis in terms of the, um, the impact or the benefit to diversity, actually, actually creating better science in the, in the, at the end result, the other end. Scott Page also done a lot of good work on that as well, and providing some good evidence for that information. So thank you again for a good talk. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that I think is interesting about the issue of whether that carries forward, because I do think there's compounding effects, but one could argue um, on the sort of flip side that people who make it through have done something, have adopted a mechanism. Uh, and the question is whether that mechanism that they've adopted to get past the self-doubt as an undergraduate uh, gets them all the way through, or whether is it re-triggered somewhere along the way. I think that would be a fascinating thing to kind of follow, uh, whether or not there's sort of a selection process that happens, much like I described the selection process in graduate programs in economics, that leads people to, to, to use that coping mechanism and survive all the way through or not. I think that would be fascinating to look at. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.